Act. There will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And Ethan, we are back with number 16 on the AFI Top 100 list of films. And that's 1950s Sunset Boulevard. Sunset BLVD. Yep, Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> it is the last of the Billy Wilder films on the list. Oh, is that true? Yeah, we've seen three others on the list. Do you remember any of them? No, I don't. <laughs> Some Like It Hot was the most recent. Oh, yes. Just before that, Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity. You know what? That makes so much sense. And then a long way back, we had The Apartment. Oh, yeah. Okay. So here we are rounding out with the fourth film. I think he's up there in director films on the list, I think. Yeah. Kubrick might be up there, and then Spielberg, I think, is the only other one that is that high. Yeah. But yeah, definitely one of the top directors on the list. Uh, and unsurprisingly, based on the uh, all of the films, I think we've enjoyed every single one so far. Yeah, and I, I don't think this one's largely different. I don't think you and I are going to have disliked this film. No. <laughs> but had you seen it before? No, I had not. And I can tell you this. I immediately was into this film. Immediately was like, yes, I'm along for this ride. Because you're a real Norma type. I am a full-on Norma type. Nor <laughs> the way Norma Desmond lives is truly the way that I wish I lived. Which is to say, in a giant mansion that is falling apart with my butler and my pet chimp. Do you um, stick your TV behind like a poster or something and then roll it up when it's time I to... love that idea. And I'm in the works right now of... I have the Sawzall, I'm cutting a hole in the wall, and thankfully it's the wall that I share with the other uh, duplex uh, good, the other good. side. So I'm just going to cut a big old hole, uh, don't much care for the neighbor, so she's just going to have to deal with it, uh, <laughs> and then uh, that's how we'll watch TV. And I've, of course I've got my um, Pulp Fiction poster that will go in front of it. Nice, absolutely. <laughs> so... This makes very little sense to anyone who has not seen the film. That is true. But maybe we could assuage that a little bit with a plot synopsis. We can. So Sunset Boulevard is the story of Norma Desmond, an aging silent film star, and Joe Gillis, a down-on-his-luck screenwriter. The film opens, of course, with Joe dead, floating in the pool of a Hollywood mansion. Then the film flashes back. Most of the film takes place during this flashback to reveal Joe's hard luck. He's being pursued by repo men. He hasn't paid his rent in three months. And after having another screenplay denied joe escapes a car chase with the repo men by pulling in what appears to be an abandoned driveway of course it's not right the mansion in actuality belongs to the eccentric norma who shares with joe a script she has been writing with the hopes of returning to the screen joe because he's hard on his luck agrees to help revise the script but it soon becomes clear to him that this situation is much more complicated norma lives alone except for her butler max and pines deeply for her lost youth 
and stardom, of course. She crafts a situation in which Joe becomes dependent on her. Norma does not realize that her continuing fan mail is being written by Max, who hopes to maintain her fragile emotional state, fearing yet another suicide attempt by Norma. At a New Year's Eve party thrown by Norma, Joe realizes that Norma's fallen in love with him, and of course he's the only uh, attendee of the party, and after trying to let her down easy, he leaves to visit his old social circle's party. There he meets Betty, a script reader who had previously turned down his work. Remember I mentioned that just a minute ago. However, she has changed her tune and hopes to write a script with him. The two flirt at the party, but when Joe calls Norma to tell her he plans on staying with Betty's fiancé, he finds out that she has attempted suicide. So he returns to her. Later, the finished script is sent to Cecil B. DeMille, who had worked with Norma in her glory years. And of course, Cecil B. DeMille is played by Cecil B. DeMille. The studio does call back, but only to try to rent Norma's ridiculous car. Norma, unknowing, surprises DeMille on his set, and he must scramble so as not to hurt her feelings. At the studio, Joe meets again with Betty, who begs him to write with her. He turns her down. Max discovers the real reason for the phone call while he waits and tells Joe. They return home and Norma begins an intensive beauty regimen, assuming that DeMille will soon call her. Joe begins working on the script with Betty at night. Norma, of course, suspects him and discovers the script and begins calling Betty to tell her about Joe. Betty, however, has fallen in love with Joe and out of love with her fiancé. Joe invites her to see how he lives after Norma calls her on the phone and pushes her to reconcile with her fiancé. He packs up to return back to Ohio, but Norma has other plans. She loses her grip on reality, and as Joe tries to leave, she shoots him, and he falls into the pool. The next morning, the body is found. This brings us full circle to the beginning of the movie. But Norma, having lost a grip with reality, believes she's on the movie set. Cameras arrive to film the scene, and Max plays into her fantasy so as to help the police get her to the car. Norma gives her final performance, walking down her staircase in full hair and makeup towards the camera for her final close-up. So a lot happens, clearly. Yes. And I've been thinking about that potential relationship with Betty that Joe stymies. Yeah. And it feels like he's afraid of becoming Norma to Betty. I think so. Which is understandable, right? So Norma, at least the actors, right? Gloria Swanson Mm -hmm. and William Holden, who we remember, of course, from the Wild Bunch. Oh, yes. Yes. That's where I know him from. You know him from other movies. Oh, my gosh. He's 19 years younger than she is as mm-hmm. an actor. And we know that Joe is around his 40s, it mm-hmm. seems like. And Betty is 22. So a very similar situation. Mm-hmm. And of course, he had had some previous screenplay or screenwriting uh, success that has has dried up. Mm-hmm. Just like Norma. Yeah. Yeah, though. His relationship with Betty seems to be built on mutual respect and Mm -hmm. they enjoy writing together. So they're good writing partners and they're also attracted to one another. 
Yeah. Whereas the relationship with Norma is one of dependency that he really gets manipulated into. Yeah. She never gives him any money except for uh the the leftover bridge money. Uh or when she sends him with a dollar to go get cigarettes, which he doesn't get because he runs right. into uh Betty again. Yeah. Uh, so she really does sort of set him up in such a way that like he is immediate like she can smell it. She has his uh, all of his apart- stuff from his apartment brought to her house. And then, of course, the the roof begins to leak uh, in his little apartment above the garage. And so he has to move into the big house. And what room does she move him into? But the room that the, all the husbands used to live in. Uh, you know, and she gives him she g- gives him all the clothing and the trappings. Uh, but, you know, their social circle is basically uh, the two of them, Max and a bunch of other silent film stars that are all uh, quite old. Um, in One of cl- whom is Buster, Buster Keaton. Keaton. The real the real I, the end of the film. When, when I saw the credits, I thought, holy shit, that really that's the actual Buster Keaton. Yeah, I saw him at the bridge table. And I said, hey, I know that guy. And yeah, I thought about it. I was like, "Oh wait, that's Buster Keaton." It truly is, which is fantastic. The, the the sort of third wall or fourth wall that is breaking stuff that happens in this film is is just excellent. Yeah. So a couple things I want to touch on that you mentioned first, briefly about the fourth wall breaking. I mean, they're actually using footage of Gloria Swanson previous films to show Norma younger right when they watch films they're norma's films but they're mm-hmm. actually the actresses gloria swanson's films when yeah. she is a silent film star so there is that like we can call it intertextuality or inner reality and then she did work with cecil demille and he calls her young fellow when she sees him mm-hmm. at the lot and apparently that's his actual nickname for her because she had so much pluck or spirit that he just called her young fellow, whatever, right? Uh, oh, wow. 20s and 30s, weird time. But so yeah. there's actual real melding of the two going on here. Yeah. Which is really interesting. But on top of that, we were talking about how he is manipulated into being in a relationship with Norma and having all these things provided for him, but he's never given the money that they initially agree on for him mm-hmm. working up the script. And I don't know if you've been in situations like this, but that is just the worst when <laughs> y- you are owed money, but they find other ways to do that. And it's still a loss of freedom for you because mm-hmm. you're like, no, I want consolidated cash. I don't want these things. I Yeah. You especially don't want someone providing them for you. So he doesn't technically need the money for anything except for independence, which he now can't have because everything right. is built off of Norma, she doesn't give any of the money to him. And that's initially what's so important about his car not being repoed, right? It's his sense of freedom, mm-hmm. very American post-war yes. idea of consumerism, but also independence because of that, right? I can afford a car. I can go places. I have the freedom to be mm-hmm. someone who is not tied down. And so losing that car is really the first nail in that coffin for him. Yes. And she just lets the repo men come and take it. Yeah, she's like, oh, is that it? Is that the big thing? Hmm. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, he had red flags before this. The yeah. whole chimp thing is wild. 
But yes, uh, which we I did not mention in our plot synopsis, but of course, when he shows up to this house, Max shuffles him in and says, we've been waiting for you. She's upstairs. And uh, Joe says, no, 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 no. And Max says, don't keep her waiting. And so uh, Joe has nothing else to do. He goes up and she gives this whole spiel about a coffin and everything and pulls back the uh, sheet over a dead body and it's her chimp. <laughs> which i found to be the most disturbing image of the film this yeah. dead chimp i don't know if it was real or it was effects but man i was unsettled by that image it was not pleasant to look at i'll tell you that no and what also isn't that pleasant is this conspiracy of two i'm gonna call it between mm-hmm. norma and max so it's not until very late in the film about an hour and 24 minutes in when we learn that Max is actually the first husband of Norma. Yes, the first husband. So that's our pivotal scene. We've got this conspiracy of silence that Max is also trying to rope Joe into. Mm-hmm. So let's this scene play out, and then we'll talk about it. Let's do it. What is it, Max? Want to wash the car? Are you doing a little spying in your off hours? You must be very careful as you cross the patio. Madame may be watching. How about going up the kitchen stairs and undressing in the dark? Will that do it? I'm not inquiring where Mr. Gillis goes every night. Why don't you? I'm writing a script, and I'm going to finish it, no matter what. It is just that I'm greatly worried about Madame. Sure you are. And we're not helping her any. Feeding her lies and more lies. Getting herself ready for a picture. What happens when she finds out? She never will. That is my job, and it has been for a long time. You must understand, I discovered her when she was 16. I made her a star, and I cannot let her be destroyed. You made her a star? Yes. I directed all her early films. There were three young directors who showed promise in those days. D.W. Griffith, Cecil B. DeMille, and Max von Meiling. And she's turned you into a servant. It was I who asked to come back, humiliating as it may seem. I could have continued my career. Only I found everything unendurable after she had left me. You see? I was her first husband. So the reason I picked this scene for our pivot is we already know at this point how disturbed and manipulative that Norma is. She tries to commit suicide on New Year's, and that scene's really good too, maybe more visual than auditory for our purposes, but Mm -hmm. she's crying in bed, and he kind of just gives up and says happy new year's norma and she's like oh happy new year's darling and you can just see the reversal of her emotions where she gets what she wants now she's better and joe has just been just weathered by it and and it finally submits to this and i do wonder you know if perhaps we're meant to understand that she that she faked it because we we never the the Max says the doctor has come and he's taking care of her, but we never see the doctor. She just we has see ba- the doctor walk out. Actually. Oh, do we? Oh, okay. Then I missed that. That okay. was the only reason I 
didn't also think the same thing because okay. like, well she could just be faking it but we know she has a history with it and that could also be a ruse but we see the doctor leaving although the doctor could have been there for as max calls it melancholy and not right. attempted suicide so yeah i'm willing to go with you on that one i mean we don't really see any evidence ever again that she has slit her wrist i mean there would be horrible wounds yeah. for weeks afterwards and then there'd be some great scarring and during her beauty regimen that's never brought up again so maybe there's a case for that there i, yeah. I think you're right but the uh, as good of a moment that is i take this revelation of max being the first husband mm-hmm. because it plays so much into that final scene because we know max was a aspiring director who's up there with all the greats at the time mm-hmm. and he seems to give it up for her and then she leaves him and he crawls back and I, I don't assume he comes back as the butler, right? He probably comes back as I'll still take care of you. And then that slowly becomes mm-hmm. him as the butler, just like Joe slowly becomes entwined with her due to this weird dependency situation. Yeah. And and she is she is like very sort of powerful in her in the way she sort of wields what what little power she has right like she's it's 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 all manipulation it's all a spider's web um that you know which is which is how she shapes reality around her yeah i mean up until her mental collapse she really is the one pulling on the strings but in that final scene we have max directing again he's actually mm-hmm. directing her arrest but again he is willing to help her delude herself yeah so that she is happy even in this moments after she's killed joe so i thought that was very powerful and the fact that him being the first husband and still going through all this and she's married three times right so joe is the fourth at least the fourth serious relationship that she's Mm -hmm. had and i think we tend to forget but in 1950 which i assume the film was also supposed to be set around 1950 yeah, that's not a small thing, right? That no, is a it's a yeah, a that's disturbing a big notion deal. then. Yeah, for, for that um, population. So yeah, I think it says a lot that you have Max still there and how willing he is to you know keep protecting her. And I yeah. think that's when Joe really looks in the mirror and sees himself, which brings us all the way around to his burgeoning relationship with Betty. I think he has good reasons to continue that relationship because it seems to be mutually beneficial. And no one's going to be depending on one another in that way. But I think he's so disturbed from his situation with Norma that he's fallen into mm-hmm. that he has nothing to do with it. Right. He says something as he gets home from their last meeting before he hears Norma on the phone. He says something like he just wishes he could blot the whole thing out. And he's Joe is surprisingly noble in his dealings with Betty. He they get very close to having a physical relationship, but we never actually see it. He he even sort of says, like, keep me at an arm's length. Yeah, but come on. That's I such know. a, like, that is a, oh, I'm not hitting on you, but I'm clearly making my intentions known by yeah. saying, like, I'm so attracted to you, I can't control myself around you. Like, that is such yeah. a predatory but, thing. It, it, well, yeah, but I think in this sort of 1950s context, right, he's, that's him being a gentleman, right? I mean, a, a sultry gentleman. I mean, he's still flirting very hardcore. With this guy's fiance, and he's like, hey, I could say you could 
you could talk to her. I didn't say you could have her. And he's like, oh, no, we're just going to sit over here. And they do that, like, faux literary right. like, flirtation. <laughs> it's like, who who are these people that don't respect boundaries whatsoever? Yeah. It, I, yeah. I don't know if that is, is the sort of theatrical nature of it or if – I mean, maybe that's how business really was conducted in the 50s. But it is not how business is, business is conducted in my social circle in uh, 2019. I'll tell you that. Yeah, so that yeah, so I think to kind of put a cap on this point, I think the relationship with Betty would have been a good one, but it would have been a lesser movie if he runs mm-hmm. away with Betty. Yeah, I I agree. Um, but by the way, uh, would you like to step into the rainbow room really quickly, Matt? Sure. Let's just go over here with this leaky shower. So you can seduce me. <laughs> Delicious. Before we go to the rainbow room, how about we instead go to our three questions? That sounds fantastic. Before we do that, however. Let's talk about Anchor. In the rainbow room? In the rainbow room. <laughs> so our first question, what do we owe to this film? I I think that this is another film up there with uh, All About Eve that really cements that figure of the aging female film star who, who l- deeply laments her lost youth and, and takes it out on, on other people people right like this is a this is like a stock character at this point uh and i and i think that this film along like i said along with um all about eve really starts to cement that in the in the sort of cultural consciousness because her this the the norma character that gloria swanson plays is such and i mean that it's a character i feel like i absolutely knew before we actually got to know her in this film or know her in this film that is yeah and i think and on top and on top of those we have a lot of lines it's the pictures that got small right I'm ready for my close-up there's yes. a lot of lines like that that are really memorable even though i hadn't seen the film before on top of that i do think you're right about this character that's become so recognizable i mean yeah there are so many parodies of if not this precise plot something very similar to it mm-hmm. in you know all the traditional things like the simpsons parodies everything futurama yes. does that a lot yeah but I also think this might be the first time we see prominently the ghost narrator. Yeah, he's a ghost. And I was wondering, is there, are they going to, what are they going to do with this? How, how, I thought maybe there was going to be a, uh, some sort of crazy reveal. Uh, And, and no, he's just dead. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking maybe this is a scene in the film. And so, right, right. Joe gets out of the pool and it's like, yeah, and that relationship was bad. So I left. Right. But no, he's an actual ghost, and we he know is. he's a ghost the whole time, and he's narrating the whole thing to us. It's very gothic, right? And some of those dead narrators that you it get. is. And I had to actually, I did have to rewind. I got about fifteen minutes in, and I, and and then I was like, oh, oh shit, that's Joe at the beginning. I, it wasn't clear to me right away, probably because I was so taken with that shot of him in the pool. Well, he also says, like, a young idiot or something. He doesn't, like, talk about it like, there I was, dead. Right, exactly. And so that, I think, is is just such a cool approach. Yeah, and I, I had the same feeling around that same time where I was like, wait a minute, was that, was that William Holden in the pool? I think I have a oh, note yeah. was like, oh, is he yeah. dead? Is this a ghost narrator? And then toward the end, I'm like, confirmed, ghost narrator. Yep. I think there's a couple other films that we feel some resonance with with this one 
I mean, the obvious one would be Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. Very similar situation. I feel like the two protagonists are similar in that way. We have a main character who is kind of bent by the will of another woman. Yeah, and... Dangerous Women. Dangerous Women feature yeah. prominently in 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 these movies. Also, another Billy Wilder film, so it's no surprise that one. Yeah. I also get a little bit of Stephen King's, what is it, Misery? Misery. Misery for sure. For sure. He is a captured writer. It's just the stakes are different. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Uh, I think there is a way, honestly, to read Misery as a as a more modern retelling of, of this film. I think. Stephen King, despite people's problems with him, is savvy enough to know that and maybe so. have made use of that in some way. Yeah. And then the last one I have here is Chinatown. Mm-hmm. It's something about the feeling of this film, because this film, you'd be hard-pressed to call it a noir, but... No, I would argue it is. I would argue it is a noir, right? It, it, I mean, I... it's mostly this, like, suspense drama and yeah, you do have like the noir like voiceover, but it's not really about a mystery, even though there are elements like being revealed that Max was actually the first husband. Mm-hmm. So I say the central plot is not really focused around a mystery or a crime or solving something. No, because it's revealed to us at the beginning, right? That that yeah. the murder has happened. So I don't know, maybe my definition where I think of like there is there's something afoot and we're trying to figure it out. And I guess you could interpret joe's death as well how did this come to be but it it was you know always going to be norma or max that killed him i don't think there was ever any doubt about that and it's the drama of what gets us there yeah and i think that drama is really the focal of the film which is more of like a you know romance gone bad kind of movie which you see a lot of b-tier films come out the early 2010s Mm -hmm. like this you know I think, like, Jennifer Lopez was in one. I think Halle Berry was in another. Yeah. And they all sort of feel that way. But, yeah, okay, so maybe I'm relenting a little bit and we can call this noir. But I feel like this has a lot of connections to Chinatown. Yeah, definitely. Even the characters' names sound very similar. Mm-hmm. Gillis and Giddies, but, of course, always been called Giddis by yeah. the villain of that film. Yeah. So it's kept being reminded of that. But I don't know. I just It just felt like we've got our, our beat detective, who, in this case, is just a scriptwriter right trying to navigate these troubled waters and that yeah. felt a lot like chinatown to me in that way i agree wholeheartedly well let's move on to our second question and does this film hold up the answer is yes i th- i think it does i i i can't think of very many ways in which it it, it doesn't i mean obviously there's as with any film like this the, the sort of sexist plot is is there and you know there there is something to be said about how the female figures here are either you know this sort of crazy old bat or a young attractive woman right it's not going to pass the bechdel test probably although well no it's not no because we really don't <laughs> ever have two female characters talking to each other except normal's phone call to betty which is explicitly about joe so yeah yeah i mean it doesn't pass the bechdel test but well and norma's a monster i mean right like which is this sort of perpetuates this sort of stereotype that, you know, women either uh, disappear into obscurity or they become monstrous as they age. Right. Yeah. But I'm mean, a hot take here. You could have films about someone being bad and not be making a statement about all people like this are bad. Yeah, I think so. I can see where you're coming from. I don't know if this film is 
part of a conspiracy of saying, well, women are monstrous when they get older. But I think there is certainly a read for that. Yeah. I'm going to temper some of this conversation a bit and say that I think some of the plot is a bit overstated. I think in a contemporary film for a modern audience, a good one, right? I'm not talking like Mm -hmm. Marvel films. Right. I think it's a little more subtle. Some of the actions, some of the emotions of the characters. Yeah. This this film does hit a lot of things on the head, right? It's it mm-hmm. is a little heavy handed in its approach, but but also I think that we you know as as people who have been steeped in you know the culture that comes out of this film, it's hard for that not to feel a little hackneyed today. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean I think films largely have gotten more subtle as time has gone on. Yeah, at least the ones we're holding up as worthwhile films yeah, pieces great of art films, as opposed yeah. to just movies right if we want to make a, a small distinction there yeah, yeah 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 so i think that just leaves us with our third and final question which is do we care about this film i i think yeah i think yeah i the the idea that Nor- norma desmond is such a giant presence of a character uh and and this film has so much to say about the sort of shift away from side like the it's about it's a, it's a shift away from the silent film into the talkies and the colors um and it's also about the the sort of aging process and how time does move on right you you can't stop that inexorable march of time and and we all become a little outdated as life goes you know what i mean so i yeah i i think that this has a lot to say and it breaks fourth walls and it breaks all yeah it's fantastic yeah i agree with you and i also should just want to remind ourselves of her charlie chaplin impression. oh my god i know oh my god it's, it's great. amazing it's really good that should be enough for us to care about it but yeah all the things we've talked about i think we've talked at length why this is a film yeah. to care about why we are interested in it still and yeah i think that's going to do it for us this episode I have to say that next time back on the afi top 100 is a film i'm highly anticipating 1968 2001 a space odyssey uh, a space odyssey another kubrick film yes done well with those on the list before so i'm looking forward to that yeah it's gonna be fun but until then i've been matt bazell and i am ethan knight and there will be spoilers all right mr bazell i'm ready for my close up my my spoiler i'm ready for my spoiler damn it <laughs> There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.